Okay, good morning. We continue our study through the London Baptist Confession this morning, and we're in this current section of God-centered living, the freedom and boundaries of the Christian life. And uh, today and the next few weeks, we're looking at chapter 22 of our confession, which is entitled, Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. And to kind of prime the pump on this, well actually before I, before I do that, before we jump into uh, our discussion right away to get us thinking about this, I do want to point out, this is a screenshot of our website, uh, our sermon audio website. Um, I, I taught a 22-part series on worship uh, a number of years ago, and you can find all 22 of those Sunday school, our uh, lectures or teachings, whatever you want to call them, they're on our sermon audio page. Um, so if you want a fuller treatment of everything we're talking about, I, you know, I'm going to take, I think, two, maybe three weeks to jump through this chapter. If you want the full background in us looking at all of the scriptures and trying to make sense of this in light of all of God's word, um, go and check out that series. So just note that this, this is going to be a 30,000 foot view uh, but there's more resources available. Um, but biblical and reformed worship, that's our topic for today. Um, chapter 22 of our confession. And I want to begin by asking a question, building off, off of what we've looked at the last few weeks. Let me ask you, what do you think is the connection, is there a connection between the doctrine of Christian liberty, chapter 21, and the doct- our doctrine of worship in chapter 22. What is the connection? Is there a connection? What do you think? Maybe. Does Christian liberty mean that we're free to worship God however we please? That would be the question. Part of the question. Do you see a connection between these two things? Okay, yes, what is that connection, Ricky? Okay, so we do have freedom in how we worship, but not absolute freedom, I'm assuming, right? Not absolute freedom, freedom. okay. Okay, it's going to take a little bit more work to get you guys thinking today, all right, or at least speaking. Um, If we say that Christian liberty means that we're free to worship God however we please, I'm going to argue that this opens the door to both legalism and antinomianism. Legalism, of course, is an improper use or view of the law. Antinomianism means no law. And what I would point you to is is what Jesus says in Mark 7, 7. I'm going to just harp on this little phrase. In vain do they worship me, speaking of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the connection, or part of the connection between Christian liberty and worship, antinomianism, we can do whatever we want, which perverts how Christian liberty frees us 
to serve and obey God according to his word without fear. In vain do they worship me. Think of that statement. They worship the Lord. Uh, Jesus is quoting Isaiah there. They worship the Lord, but it's in vain. It's not just that they want to worship the Lord. It's not just the heart that matters. Of course, the heart does matter. But they worship him in vain. Well, legalism would be the other side of this, which is really two sides of the same coin. Commandments not derived from God's word violate our liberty that put us back under bondage. In vain do they worship me, teaching commandments of men. You see here the connection then between Christian liberty and worship. It's not a free-for-all. Christian liberty doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want, um, but Christian liberty frees us from external bondage so that we can conform ourselves to the word and proper worship of God. So I'm going to expound on this more. Karen? Oh, okay. <laughs> now, in that 22-part series, I take two weeks to talk about the distinction between private and public worship. Um, and actually, this is going to get to my next question in just a moment, but that, that is a great question. Uh, I'm talking chiefly in this series about corporate worship. Uh, private worship comes into play here, but not, not to the same extent, because in private worship, we have a greater freedom of conscience. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. But that's a great question because I'm thinking at least centrally at this point about public worship. In the New Testament, public worship is always primary. In fact, in the Old Testament as well. Yes, we're to worship the Lord in private. Uh, That is central to our Christian life. But corporate worship is primary. In fact, almost all of what the New Testament says about worship is corporate. It says very little about private worship. So, um, both important, but one takes precedence over the other. I often say, private worship prepares us for corporate worship. Kim? Yes. So, it seems like the vainness comes from the, the legalism. Yeah, legalism and antinomianism are, are really the same thing. It's setting our standard above God's, whether that means a real strict standard or no standard at all, instead of being guided by God's word. So, the antinomianism is in the sense of like, there is a way in which our worship is in vain. And that can be from either teaching commandments of men or not following God's word. I'm sorry, what? Very sobering. Very sobering, absolutely. Yes. Which is why this is a serious, very serious topic. Thank you. Um, another passage to get us thinking John 4 24, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. Notice what he says to her. He tells her, and she was a God-fearer in some sense. They worshipped the God of the Old Testament. They were Samaritans, so they had been mixed with Gentiles, but they still 
uh, they didn't worship in Jerusalem, but they still worshiped according to the Old Testament. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. There is the connection there between the heart and the body, or maybe our motive in worship and our form of worship. We must worship in spirit. I would argue that's a capital S there, in the Holy Spirit. The true worship only is only possible through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there must the, the, the worship must be in faith. Um, and no, I'm not going to jump to the doctrine of baptism here. I'll just leave you to connect those dots. But you must be regenerated in order to worship. You must be a believer. You must have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that worship must be from the heart, not formal, as in I'm just going through the motions. But it also must be in truth. Spirit and in truth. God-honoring worship must be according to spirit and in truth. And Christ's work has opened this up for us. The hour is now here. No longer do you just go through the externals of the old covenant rituals, but worship now through the indwelling Holy Spirit we draw near to God in spirit and in truth. So, let me think of it this way then. Getting kind of to Karen's question, but thinking about this deeper. What is the connection between Christian liberty and corporate worship? And I said that was our focus, but think of this question I ask. Um, have you ever felt like you were held hostage in church? Hopefully you don't feel that way right now. Have you ever been to church and you're like, this is so bad. I need to get out of here. Thank you, Sam, for illustrating my point. Okay, I thought you were leaving. <laughs> I mean, haven't we all been there before? There is a real sense in which you, you go to a church, and maybe you're visiting, and you're looking for a church, and you sit down, and within five minutes, you know, I don't believe what they believe. I don't feel comfortable here. But you can't just, like, get up and walk out. You feel like you're held hostage. I have heard a story of a guy, uh, it was a Pentecostal church, that um, they needed money for their building fund, and he preached a sermon on tithing, and they actually chained the back doors. And uh, he said, we're not leaving until we raise the money we need to raise. And they passed the plate until that money, you know, that's literally held hostage. I'm speaking more just in the psychological or metaphorical sense. I remember one time I went to a worship service and right in the middle of the service they recognized, you know, Bill over here and Sandy over here who had birthdays and they called them up to the front and they sang happy birthday in the middle of the church service. And I was, I was a little bit horrified. I didn't know Bill or Sandy. But I was like, I love the fact that we're singing happy birthday to people who are beloved in the congregation, but in the middle of worship? I wanted to get out of there. I want to run away. I don't want to get struck by lightning. Well, 
Our doctrine of worship is especially and particularly important in corporate worship so that we don't bind the consciences of others with forms of worship they may not be comfortable with. When we come together as a church, it's about the community. It's not about you. We might prefer and have a clean conscience with this or that method or form of worship, but we violate Christian liberty if it is not explicitly commanded or grounded in God's Word. So I asked a question, but I mean, have you guys ever been to a church service where you're like, what they're doing or what they're singing, I'm not okay with. That's what I'm getting at here. We better make sure when we come together that everything we do has warrant in the Word of God. Because we can easily sin and violate the consciences of people who are gathered here, making them feel hostage. So this is where the Reformed doctrine of worship comes into play. Here is, uh, you know, this weekend is the uh, 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, here is Luther, this picture um, uh, at the Diet of Worms, well, however you say it, worms, worms. But um, the Reformed doctrine of worship was particularly in response to the abuse and inventions of the Roman Catholic and medieval church. They had added things to worship that were not in Scripture. And the Reformers were like, that violates our Christian liberty. I would say, ultimately, the Protestant Reformation was chiefly about the Reformation of worship. Because all the other things, Scripture, justification, church authority, the priesthood of all believers, all serve this end and goal of worship. Because worship is the primary activity of the Christian life. Worship is the primary means by which you grow in your faith. Corporate worship. It is the ground of everything. And so the Reformers like, you mess up worship, you mess up everything. And all of our protesting ultimately is to serve this end. So, John Owen says here, in his teaching, Christ freed his people from the bondage of pharisaical arbitrary impositions, delivering their consciences from subjection to anything in the worship of God but his own immediate authority. I'm going to get more specific with this. We're going to think of some examples so that we can put legs to some of this. But this is what the Reformation is about. And this is a connection between Christian liberty and worship. Free our conscience so that we know, so that no church authority can say, you need to do this in the worship of God without warrant from God's Word. Um, this doctrine is called the Regular Principle of Worship, RPW for short. It is a distinction of Reformed worship. It is what distinguishes a Reformed church from everybody else, really. 
Um, and it's built on a few general prerequisites. Who is the object of worship? It's the Lord, it's not us. All right, if the Lord receives worship, if he's the object of worship, who determines whether worship is pleasing to him? Do we determine that? Or does he determine that? Who determines what worship is best or most edifying for the people of God? Do we decide this makes me feel good, this makes me feel inspired, this grows me in my faith, this makes me feel closer to God, this is what I need in the Christian life, or does the Lord say, no, 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 this is what you need, this is what is best, this is what grows you. The Reformed doctrine of worship is built upon these very simple questions with very simple answers. So the regular principle of worship, it is God's house, it's God's new covenant temple, it's God's new covenant people, thus it's God's worship. He specifically regulated worship in the Old Testament and gave them very strict instructions and said, do not add or take away to these things, do exactly as I say. And his word also regulates worship in the greater temple, in the New Testament. Of course, not in the same way, not with the same bondage of ceremonies, not in the same externality, but in the same way that, that God instructs us and guides us into his worship. He guards it with his word. And this also flows out of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture which we covered way back in chapter 1. Scripture is sufficient to reveal to us what is pleasing to God and edifying to God's people. You don't need to go beyond God's Word to know what pleases Him in worship. You don't need to go beyond God's Word to know what you need in the Christian life. Well, it feels very, very important to me that journaling, personal journaling, is absolutely necessary for my growth as a Christian. Well, it may be good. And I want to encourage you to do that. Um, but Scripture doesn't command you to take a personal journey journal of your life. And you can't say that that's absolutely necessary if Scripture doesn't mention it. It may be good. It's not necessary. And it may be good for you, but it may not be good for your neighbor. And so you can't command your neighbor, you have to journal, otherwise you're not a serious Christian, or you're not worshiping him the right way. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. Scripture's sufficient. But we're going to think more examples here. Um, in that sense, then, today's the, the definition and boundaries of worship from the confession. It defines it. It starts to set boundaries. Next week we'll get more specific. Um, so we get in chapter 22, paragraph 1. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. 
But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to break this down phrase by phrase by phrase. Light of nature. What is this? How do you understand that? What's the light of nature? General revelation. What's general? Okay. Anything that anyone can, everyone can see. Ethan? Uh, I was going to say, God shining his light on us. How? Um, like, he created the sun. Okay. So through the creation. Common sense, reason, light of nature is general revelation. And general revelation, which is available to all and confronts all, everybody who's ever created, everybody knows there is a God, He's sovereign, He's just and good, otherwise we wouldn't enjoy life or have life. And thus he's to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all of our being. Everybody knows this instinctively. It's part of being made in the image of God. This is knowledge available and declared. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky, his handiwork. Right? There is no speech that is not heard, that psalm goes on to say. You can't close your ears to this. General Revelation is built on Romans 1, 19-21. What can be known about God is plain to them, all men, because God has shown it to all men. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived, so that's understood, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that man is without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. All people know God and that He is to be worshipped, but they're condemned because they don't honor Him, which is a word for worship, or give thanks to Him, which is an activity of worship. So the confession starts this way. Worship, everybody knows that there's a God and He's to be worshipped. Um... But, what's special revelation? The, the picture might give you a hint there. What's special revelation? God's Word. God's Word, which can take the form of Scripture. But, you know, Hebrews 1.1, in many times, in many ways, God has spoken. Throughout the Old Testament, He spoke in dreams. He spoke in direct communication. He spoke through signs and wonders, through visions. We don't believe he still speaks in the same way. Uh, those formerly ways have ceased. You know, Hebrews 1 again, he's now spoken to us in his son. His son uh, speaks to us through his word, through his Holy Spirit. But general revelation shows us that God exists and that he needs to be worshipped. He must be worshipped. But special revelation 
is necessary to teach us how to worship Him. The acceptable way to worship Him. We need the Scriptures to know how to worship God. So there's only two ways of worshiping God, according to confession. An acceptable way of worshiping God or an unacceptable way, because God defines and reserves the right to define how he is to be worshipped. If you've ever read John Calvin's Institutes, it's amazing. He starts there in book one about how all men know there's a God and all men know that he's to be worshipped. And he traces this, or he just recounts all the pagan ideals of worship and how is proof of this. Right? That, that, no matter, that, that every group and culture on earth in the history of the world, they worship something, whether it's the sun, moon, and stars, or the trees, or the animals, or whatever. They know that God is worshiping, but, they, but that's our idolatry. We worship God how we want. So, God sets boundaries and guardrails for His worship. To lead us into what is pleasing to Him, to protect us for, with what is safe for us. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. And to provide for us what is good for us in the body of Christ as a whole. Guardrails of worship. Because our sinful nature, we're going to twist and distort everything. If left to ourselves. So... Think with me some extra biblical examples of extra biblical worship. Worship practices forbidden by Scripture. And then some worship practices that are not mentioned in Scripture. Can you think of worship practices where other Scriptures make it clear that this is forbidden? Common worship practices. The Mass. Absolutely. Um, the transubstantiation of the Mass. Chandler? The making of images of idols. The making of images of I- and idols. Bowing down to a statue. Cody? Yes, yes, that's, that's really, really good. I used to live next door to someone who, oh, my church is nature. Me and myself out there, and I worship God out there alone. Um, that's the worship practice. Yeah. That's forbidden. Yep, absolutely. Charity. Say God. Tempting God. Like snake handling. Snake handling. Yes, putting God to the test. Yes. Richard. Stained glass windows, images, icons. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The veneration of the saints. Veneration of the saints. Yeah, this is excellent. Uh, uh, Rachel. Yes. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know... That's the arena, yes. Um, I'm thinking more specifically about like forms of worship, but 
Absolutely, in the sense of like church structure and order plays a role in this as well. Um, a few I thought of. Old Testament child sacrifice or human sacrifice. That was a big thing back then. Murder is evil. Self-flagellation, which has been popular in medieval and Roman Catholic circles. You worship by cutting yourself. It's destructive. Cult prostitution. Also, different times of redemptive history or biblical history, this was prominent and threatened God's people. Right? You, 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 through the sexual intimacy, there is a spiritual aspect. And it's a way in which you connect with the divine. A drug, alcohol-induced euphoria. The use of images and idols. These are ways in which pagans and sometimes professing Christians have worshipped, have tried to connect with God, have tried to edify themselves, but they are forbidden by other scriptures. But it gets a little bit more difficult. What about ways of worshiping God where scripture is silent? Think of something that scripture does not forbid and that might be okay in another sense, but is improper in a corporate sense. Richard? Ooh, going straight for the jugular there. Okay, okay. Okay, the altar call. Um, the, uh, the invitation where there, it's part of the worship service where there is a promise of walking forward or raising your hand or praying a prayer is a way in which to connect with God, get right with God, worship God. Yes, I, I, I believe, yes. Jeremiah? Sunday school. No, Sunday school um, is a method of teaching and preaching. Eileen. The choir and the music the whole time. Again, you're stepping on toes. Yes, Sebastian. To prime the pump, in a way, yes. Well, it's, it's amazing in a lot of Protestant churches. Like, the stage is the altar, and there's, they'll invite people to come up and pray, which isn't necessarily a horrible thing, but they're, they're, in some ways there can be like a special connection, a special, if I go forth and, and I pray up there, it means something more, um, which, which can be dangerous. Dalton? Okay, the second great awakening. I would agree with that, Charity. Lighting candles. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, Stephanie. I'm sorry. What? Pre-planned revivals. The Holy Spirit's going to show up at 6 p.m. on Tuesday. Be there. Be square. Yes, Richard.
Okay, uh, waiting on the spirit to move. Uh, the Quakers, they would sit in a circle, and that's where they got their name from. They would sit there and not plan or anything and just wait for the spirit to move and they'd start shaking and then one thing would lead to another. Excellent. These are, these are a lot of good things. Um, and I'm going to give you some of the examples I thought of, but I don't know if you can see this. I, I copied this out of a book or the, I, I stole this graph out of a book, but this is the regular principle versus the normative principle. The Puritan view, the Reformed view, true worship is only what is commanded False worship is anything that's not commanded. The Anglican view, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, and I would say modern evangelical view, true worship is what is commanded plus anything that's not forbidden. And false worship is only what is condemned, like child sacrifice. You see the difference? We hold to the Puritan view. So, in the Roman and the Anglican church, Scripture does not forbid using the sign of the cross in worship. I don't even know how to do that. The burning of candles and incense, the practice of penance, the veneration of saints, that may be argued, you know, do we really, maybe Scripture forbids that. They don't think so, obviously. The use of relics, the use of idols and images and icons, prayers for the dead, the withholding of the cup from the laity. You know, in the Roman Catholic Mass, you don't get to drink the cup. Only the priests do. So they withhold the cup if you're not a priest. Well, Scripture, I mean, doesn't say not to. It's a sin to withhold the cup. It doesn't say that. So the Roman Anglican Church, they, they add all these things in to their worship. Even when you walk in, and the use of holy water. Right? It's a way to connect with God, a way that draws you closer to God, a way of worshiping God, a way of, in, in a sense, that edifies you, that builds you up. Well, the Reformers are saying, <clears throat> what builds you up and draws you close to God is only what He's told you. You can't think of your own way of getting close to God. Otherwise, you're the, like, like the guy that Cody talked of. I feel closest to God when I'm on a mountaintop. And I'm viewing this beautiful sunset. And I'm away from everybody else and I can just sit there and talk with him. The, Rome, the, the Reformed Church is like, no, you don't get to define what draws you closer to God. It's not based upon your feelings. It's not based upon your opinions. Yes, Aiden. Oh, worship. <laughs> In a sense. Um, Yes, uh, venerating them, so honoring them, praying to them, um, exalting them in a worship service or something like that. The broad evangelical church. It's amazing how Roman Catholic they are. And I don't mean that as, you know, punching down in the sense of, you know, just trying to exalt ourselves above them. But... Scripture does not forbid using drama or movies and videos as inspiration and in worship or liturgical dance or altar calls or special music. Uh, I would argue choirs, although there's a lot of Reformed churches that, that would use choirs. Um, I, choirs is a tough one. Um, I just included that because a lot of Puritans would say, no choirs. 
We could debate that at another time. But in the same way, what helps us connect with people? A liturgical dance. Doesn't that inspire you? Okay, Ricky's like, no. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. <laughs> Ways of worship that are not forbidden. There's nothing in Scripture that says, thou shalt not do an interpretive dance. Thou shalt not use inspirational video clips in your service. But the Reformed is like, no, 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 no. We stick to what God has said. And yes, I would say the modern church largely has returned to Rome in many sense, which is why our confession is so relevant. Even the altar call, it's Roman Catholic. We don't have altars in Protestant churches because we don't have a mass. Christ is risen. There's no need for a sacrificial table anymore. And, you know, when I was growing up, if you fell into sin and you did something really bad, particularly as a teenager, like, you would go and you would rededicate your life at the altar call. And I would watch people, friends in my youth group, do that like every six months. I remember seeing one guy do that, and then the very next week he was smoking weed behind the, the youth group building. And I was like, he just rededicated his life. But he would do it over and over again because it was a penance. It was an extra biblical way of thinking, okay, I need to make, get right with God. This is what I need to do. It's Roman Catholic. So, <clears throat> the Reformed distinctives, human sinfulness is particularly expressed in idolatrous worship. Like, that's where human sinfulness really comes out. Because we want to worship God how we want to. We want to do what makes us feel good. Who, what, what gets us inspired. Right? What, what, we want to do that which we see leading to good results. And we don't want to be guided by God's word. So God must direct our worship rather than following our heart. That's what the regular principle gets at. We are not wiser than God either. God directs us to know to, to that which is good for us. We don't get to decide what's good for us. And God does this for our good and for His glory. So, let me try to wrap up here. We've got about five minutes. It's instituted by God Himself, limited to His own revealed will, so that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations or devices of men. Um, what is the imagination and devices of men? I was going to ask you, but I'm just going to get through this because we're almost out of time. He may not be worshipped according to our own conception of God. What He is like. What He desires. What He looks like. Apart from His Word. And this is a call to guard our thoughts. God may not be worshipped according to our own imagination in our own ways. Any form or ritual or manner of worship that we invent apart from His Word. What about the suggestions of nation, uh, Satan? He may not be worshipped according to the suggestions of Satan. Um, here, think of the garden. Right? Because Satan came in and made suggestions to Eve. 
Uh, Here the confession is getting at whether it's through dreams or visions or impressions or just carnal desires, forms of worship derived that are pleasing to our flesh. An easy example of this would be something like drug or alcohol-induced worship or cult prostitution, or things that serve our carnal desires, which would be a temptation of Satan. He may not be worshipped through any visible representations. Um, statues, or idols, paintings, images, icons, stained glass, as was mentioned earlier. Um, just think about In the Old Testament, idolatry was chiefly around the visual. And particularly in this sense, like the golden calf pictured here, they called that golden calf Yahweh. It's not like they were worshiping an animal. They wanted something to see. They wanted, wanted like in a sense, like, like, you know, a mascot. Our bald eagle in America. That, That is our picture of freedom and strength and power. They wanted something like that to latch on to and say, go before us. We want a symbol of our God. They called it Yahweh. And that is what idolatry is. Um, of course, the, the second commandment speaks to this. In Deuteronomy 4, 15-19, the Lord says, you know, you didn't see any form on the day that I delivered you. So you be careful that you don't try to form for yourself your own image of what I look like. Um, does this include images of Jesus? <laughs> Louis? Uh, this actually is what he said the whole person of the Trinity, so it's even more argumentative for Christians. So it's not just Jesus, it's also the Father and the Spirit. Yes. So it's even more. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, it is a very controversial subject, and it's a deep subject, and it's not something we have time to really work through today, but. Uh, I, I would agree with the confession that it does include images of Jesus. Um, anytime we form an image of Jesus, we frame him according to what we want him to look like. That's just a fact. Think, this, is, this is a, I don't mean this to be a crude example, but it's a real example. Um, if you look at like, Old Testament, uh, if you look at the religions of the Old Testament, particularly ancient Near East, the, the gods that they would form would have very, very exaggerated genitalia. You see that in um, Hinduism as well. It's because that's what they value. That's what they want. Um, when we frame a picture of Jesus, we're going to make him what we want. And there's really, really danger in that. And you can't say, well, Jesus was a real human. Well, those gods had real genitalia as well. Is it okay to portray it that way? No, it's not. Jesus was a real human. Is it okay to portray him how we want? No, it's not. Um, So uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, I think, answers this well. What does God require in the second commandment? that we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship Him in any other way than He is commanded in His Word. Are images then not to be made at all? God neither can nor may be represented by any such means. As as to creatures, though they may be represented, 
yet God forbids us to make or have any resemblance of them in the worship in order to worship them or serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity. That was the argument of the Roman Catholic Church. People can't read. If you don't make images, they're not going to learn about God. And the, and the Heidelberg Catechism says, no, we must not pretend to be wiser than God. Who will have his people taught not by dumb images that do not speak. Christ is the word. He isn't the picture. But by the lively preaching of his word. So that's my real quick answer to that. And to wrap it up, the confession says he may not be worshipped in any way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so only God's revelation can keep us from idolatry. Only God can tell us what pleases him. Only God can tell us what is best for us. If worship is the chief way in which we grow as Christians, if it's the primary way we manifest our faith and love for God, then it must be governed by more than just general principles. Worship in spirit and in truth is only that which the Holy Scripture tells us. And so, I actually made it through all of that. We don't have time for last questions or comments. Um, But next week, we'll look at this more specifically. It defines the confession who God is and the manner and the means that we are to worship Him and even the allotted time that we are to worship Him. And that's where the rest of the chapter goes. So, thanks for your feedback and your, um, your input, your conversation. That was good. Uh, discussion that is. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer.